So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Today my objective is to go through the whole chapter. And I've been doing that a little more as of late, as I said on Wednesday nights, and there's something kind of cool about it. It's nice to take just a text and really grind the, the dust out of it, but it's, uh, it's also cool to cover large portions of Scripture and see how it all ties together. And this chapter's it's uh, particularly, um, you can do that. Um, just the whole chapter really ties together, one, one overarching theme. So it's a lot of Scripture to cover. I'm going to try to move quickly. This is what is known as the Olivet Discourse. You will also find this in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. It's much more comprehensive there. There's a lot more to it in, that, uh, in Matthew. It's much more condensed here. It's very concise. There's a lot of end times theology, end times teaching, uh, but because Mark blows through it so quickly, I'm going to do the same. Uh, I, I, it's kind of good to move through something at the pace that almost seems that the writer is moving. And this is an action-packed uh, book, and he moves quickly through it. So we're just going to move through. I'm not going to take opportunity to make several different studies on end times theology out of this chapter, though I could, and some pastors do. Um, so I'll just put that out front. I hope for those of you who love end times prophecy and theology, this is not going to be uh, overly detailed to that end. Some of you may be breathing a sigh of relief to that. I don't know. Uh, it's kind of a mix. Some people love it. Some people just they can't you know, deal with it. So at any rate, you will notice that there is somewhat of a, an, a shift in this chapter. Basically, the, the disciples ask Jesus a question. They don't even probably know exactly what they're asking him. And Jesus launches off into answering the question. And the whole chapter is essentially that. Uh, Jesus makes a comment about the temple. He says the temple will be destroyed. They want to know when is this going to happen will be the sign of, of the end. And then he launches off from there and he, he gives them a lot more than what they actually asked for. So that's the whole chapter. Uh, really, you could say there's four sections and the first three deal with the church age, the time of the Gentiles, the time that we are currently in, and then the great tribulation and then the second coming of Christ, and then kind of the fourth part of the chapter, Jesus wraps it all up and says, okay, so therefore, this is how you ought to live in the light of all of this. And so that's basically the idea. And the last word in the chapter, he says to watch, to watch. And so that's what I have titled the sermon, and, uh, and you'll see what I mean when we get there. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the Word of God. We thank you that it is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path, and many of us have benefited greatly from it. We have been changed by your Spirit through your Word, and we, we long for more of that, Lord. We want to be changed. We want to be more like you, Lord. We want to be less like our old selves, less like the world. And so I pray as we are in the Word today that you would bring it to life, that you would encourage those who need to be encouraged, that you would refresh those who need to be refreshed, Lord, that you would challenge and convict those who need it. And I pray that there would be great edification and blessing that would go forth today by your word. For your glory, O oh God, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so let's dig in. Verse 1. This is the age of the Gentiles. Then he went out of the temple, and one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And Jesus answered and said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. 
I want to take just a little bit of extra time on these first couple of verses, and then we're going to move kind of rapidly uh, through some of the other verses. So they, uh, Jesus is about to be crucified. He's at the very end, and they are making their pilgrimage into Jerusalem for the Passover, and they see the temple, the temple mount, and you would be tempted to think that these were kind of like tourists. They had never seen this before, but that was not the case. These guys would have seen the temple multiple times uh, over the course of their life through all the pilgrimages they would have made into Jerusalem. That just speaks to the glory of the temple. It was an amazing structure. Now, the first temple was built by Solomon, and it was destroyed by the Babylonians. There was a second temple that was built during the time of Ezra, and it paled in comparison. It, it really didn't compare. In fact, in Ezra, when the temple was rebuilt, a lot of people were celebrating and rejoicing over this, but it says that there was a mixed crowd. There were actually people in the crowd crying uh, the older people who had seen the previous temple, they, they knew of its glory. They were actually weeping because the new one just didn't, didn't compare. And uh, fast forward, Herod, he decides to take this up as a building project and he expands on the temple. It, it was important to him to have favor with the Jews so he would do certain things to win their approval and this was one of them. Massive project that he undertook and it took about 80 years for this project, for Herod's temple to be built. It was just covered with gold. They say when the sun was shining, you would just be blinded. You couldn't look at it. There was so much marble, they said, that from a distance, people thought there was snow on the temple. And uh, it, was, it had massive stones. They, they actually referenced that in the text. It was said that some of the stones were 50 feet wide, 25 feet high, and 15 feet deep. Um, almost impossible for some modern cranes to even lift these stones. It's a real marvel. And so you, you understand these guys, they see this temple and they're just blown away. It's not like us, you know, we, we see those kinds of things often. We maybe go over to San Francisco and that's kind of a new thing for me. I was picking up uh, a group of our missionaries from SFO and uh, we were coming back through the city and it was a little bit of a, a traffic jam there, no surprise. And uh, we were there for a while, and I was just kind of mesmerized by the city. And I think the other people were kind of annoyed, and they were asking me, like, are you okay? Are you frustrated? I was like, no, man. I'm like zoning out on this. I'm not really seeing anything like this before. Um, it just kind of speaks to that. But, you know, we see those kinds of things. The disciples did not. These were country boys. They were countrymen kind of in the, in the outskirts, you know, in the rural area. They were fishermen. And so they were blown away by the, the majesty of this temple. And the temple was revered by everybody, so much so that people would actually swear by the temple. So, you know, instead of saying, you know, we would often hear people say that they swear to, I'm not going to say it, but in that sense, they would actually swear on the temple. And uh, it, they considered it blasphemy to speak against the temple. If you said something contrary or something uh, derogatory about the temple, that was a breaking of blasphemy law. They took that very seriously. But the reality, Jesus was not impressed by the temple, for one thing. And Jesus did not shy away from saying that he was greater than the temple. He said, Behold, there's one among you here who is greater even than the temple. It was as if the temple became greater than God in their sight when God was in their midst and He was reminding them that God is here and, and He's greater than your, your little temple. It's not that impressive to God. Uh, 
um, Jesus foretold the fact that the temple would be destroyed. He said, you see these stones? There will not be one left upon another. That's significant. Those are massive stones. And this is, it happened. About 40 years later, roughly 40 years later, 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed. And there was not one stone left on top of another. And they, they think the reason is, is because the, uh, there was an uprising against Rome. So Rome came in and sacked Jerusalem. And the last of the people who rose up against Rome ran into the temple for refuge. So they just kind of encamped around the temple. And someone ended up setting fire to the temple. And everyone inside burned. They burned. And... Um, the gold melted, all the gold in the temple, and went down into the, the, the bricks, the stones, the foundation. And so they really undertook it as a project to get that gold out. And I have heard it said that they were finding ways to blow up the stones and, and get down to the gold. So at the end of the day, the gold, they got it out, and there was not one stone left on top of another. And that was a literal fulfillment of what Christ said would happen. So that sets a precedent for the rest of the chapter. Jesus said it would happen, and it happened, literally. Therefore, when Jesus goes on from this point throughout the chapter and says all these other things can happen, we should take it literally, right? And so that's, that's very significant. Keep that in mind. Now let me just say this before we move on. I'm spending more time kind of on these first couple verses than, than anywhere else, but I think it's, it's good. On one hand, it would be easy to say this was judgment, God is judging them. You'll remember that Jesus came into the temple not too long before this, really just maybe a week or two earlier, and he chased out the people who were making merchandise in, in the temple. And he said, you know, it's written, my father's house will be a house of prayer, and you've made it a, a den of thieves or of, of merchandise. And then he left, you'll, you'll recall, and there was a fig tree and he thought that there would be fruit on the fig tree, and there wasn't, so he cursed the fig tree and said, let nothing ever grow on you again. And really, we see that kind of as a picture of Israel so often throughout the Bible. God expected there to be fruit, and there wasn't, and so that they were accursed of God. And so, here we have it. And Jesus, they were condemned, they were accursed, and they were judged, and the temple was destroyed. But on the other hand... This is kind of the close of an era, if you will. The old covenant, the old system, the Old Testament sacrifice, there was no longer a need for that. Why? Because the greater sacrifice has, has come. And this was a sacrifice that was once and for all. For all sin, past, present, and future, there's no more need for regular animal sacrifices and offerings for sin. Jesus is the superior, the supreme sacrifice. And so, that's it. If you turn away from that, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. That's the Gospel, guys. Jesus is a better high priest of a better covenant, and He's the greatest sacrifice. He is the one-time sacrifice for our sins. They used to have to go into the temple and bring animals to be slaughtered so that their sins would be not washed away, but covered over. It was very temporary. And that would have to be, I mean, gosh, how... You know, you go in, you get your sins covered, and then five minutes later, you're guilty again. You know, that's, I mean, if we were honest with ourselves, that's pretty much what it, where it's at. And so it was a never-ending cycle of having to come in and go through the priestly rituals and, and have your sins covered over. 
But that was an inferior system. And Jesus came along and He set up a a superior system, and that is the one-time sacrifice of the Holy Lamb of God. There is no more temple anymore. Now we are the temples of God. Amen? Amen? We are the temple and the Holy Spirit dwells within us. So if you put your faith and your trust in the Lamb of God, the Son of God, your sins are forgiven, they are washed away, they are removed from you as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered again. There's no need for another sacrifice. It's been accomplished. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. Those are sweet words to the ears of a believer. Because we know that there is no more need for sacrifice. Our sins have been washed away by the blood of the Lamb upon that rugged cross. Amen? So this, I would say, was judgment, and conversely, it was the ushering in of a new age, the church age, the new covenant. So moving on. Jesus makes this statement. This is a very profound statement. It causes the disciples to ask the question. Verse 3, Now as He sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked Him privately, Tell us when these things will be. And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Matthew gives us a much more detailed uh, account of the question that they ask. And it's in your notes there. What they actually say is, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So that that was a multifaceted question. They were really asking two things. And again, I would submit to you, they probably didn't even understand what they were asking. But in their minds, this temple is going to be destroyed? I mean, that to them probably was synonymous with the end of the world. I mean, to to think of that happening, it it would have to be the end of the age. So tell us, when is the end of the age? When is the end of the world? What is the sign of your return? So Jesus begins to, to answer them, and He gives them honestly a lot more than I think they were probably bargaining for or asking. And so He says, verse 5, And Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in My name, saying, I am He, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrows." So Jesus says, as we begin to approach the beginning of the end, you're going to see certain things happen. You're going to see false Christs and false representatives. And we've certainly seen this through the generations. And even in our time, I think of small little uh, cult-type gatherings like in Waco, Texas. I'm sure a lot of people in here remember that. Um, But then we think of larger scale movements, people who represent Christ in a false way. The Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, they have much more influence people who say they are the Christ, people who say that they are Christ's representatives, but they're false. He says there's going to be wars. There's going to be earthquakes, famines, troubles. And again, this is nothing out of the ordinary. It has always been that way. And sometimes we're tempted to think, man, things are getting so bad, this must be the end. And when certain calamities hit, it's not hard to understand how someone may really think, it's going down, this is it, we're in the end. But Jesus said, really, this is just the beginning of the end. This is not the end. He said it, I think, in verse 7. The end is not yet. And then in the end of verse 8, He said, these are the beginnings of sorrows. Literally, it's birth pangs. 
And so the idea here is just as a, a, a woman would be in labor, just as uh, it escalates in intensity and frequency as she's getting closer to delivering the child, Jesus says that this will be the same. These things will, they will increase in intensity and frequency, but the end is not yet. This is just the beginning of sorrows. So moving on, verse 9, he says, But watch out for yourselves. So he's kind of switching now. These are things that you're going to see out there, but watch out for yourself, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate about what you will speak. But whatever is given to you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved." Those are some very sobering and startling words. Now it becomes personal. Jesus says there's going to be fierce hatred, familial betrayal, beatings, even death. And so, you know what, guys? The Gospel unites, and it should. Uh, we are all one in Christ. In Christ, there is no slave, no free, barbarian, Scythian, male, female. We're all one, and we're united to him in that we're united together. You just look at the disciples. Those guys couldn't have been any different, uh, some of them, yet they came together in Christ. And you consider just the analogy of the body in general. There are many different parts, but they work together in unison. And so unity and, and diversity, it's something special that comes from the gospel. But the gospel also most certainly divides, it most certainly separates. Not because in and of itself it's so divisive, but people are divisive. And there are people who, who, who wonderfully accept the gospel unto life. And then there are people who vehemently reject it unto death. And, uh, and so then there's a separation that occurs. And there's, there's just a hatred that comes about. Part, in my mind, part of the... I think one of the things that causes me to believe some of these things to be true is just the fierce hatred that people have for Christ but no one else. All the other religions are okay. All the other uh, philosophies, that's all fine. And God is good. Start talking about Jesus and it's a game changer real fast. And so there's just something about that. It is, it is divisive. And I will say the gospel message, it, it can be offensive. It is offensive to people when you say you're a sinner and you have fallen short and you are not going to go to heaven. You cannot stand in God's presence because your sin has separated you from a holy God. No one likes to hear that. And it's not an inclusive message. It's a very narrow message. And people don't like that. They don't like being told that the way, the only way, that it can't be their way. People like to fabricate or come up with their own ideas and mix and match how they think it ought to be. And the Gospel leaves no room for that. The Gospel says this is the way, it's the only way, and it's a narrow way. And so it is an offensive message and people do hate it. And let me just encourage you, don't water it down. Don't apologize for it. Jesus certainly didn't. And He said that we would be hated by everyone for His, his sake and, and the Gospel's sake. 
And so what, how shall they, what should they do in the midst of this? Okay, they're going to be, there's going to be persecution, betrayal, uh, beatings, all of this. Jesus says, verse 10, the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. So I don't think that this is saying that before the end comes that the gospel has to be preached around the whole world. Although I do believe the Bible teaches that that will happen. If you look at different scriptures, uh, the, it seems to indicate there will be a worldwide proclamation and everyone will hear, everyone will know. But I don't think that's what this is saying. I think it's simply saying that in the midst of trials, in the midst of tribulation, persecution, betrayal, beatings, death, you need to be preaching the gospel. You've got to preach the gospel. We're still responsible to go forth with the message of the gospel. That's, that's kind of scary, is it not? That's sobering. This is not the kind of stuff that is real popular in the church these days. Uh, this is kind of contrary to, to a lot of what we hear and what people are buying into. Jesus said it's going to be hard. There's going to be fierce hatred. There's going to be separation. There's going to be betrayal. There's going to be persecution. And you have to preach the gospel anyways. And that's kind of sobering, is it not? That's straight from the, the mouth of Jesus. Well, the question is, how are they going to do this? Who could do such a thing? How could they do such a thing? And the answer is the Holy Spirit. Verse 11, when they arrest you and deliver you up, don't worry beforehand or premeditate about what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit is going to give you in that hour what you ought to speak. Now, that's awesome. That's a really encouraging word because have you ever wondered what would you do if you were in a situation where you had to potentially you could lose your life? Have you ever wondered what you would do? And generally I tell people, well, well, let me start here. If you aren't living for Christ now, what in the world makes you think you would die for Him then? For starters. But honestly, if we're going to be very honest, I think most of us would be scared to death and we would, we would turn away in a heartbeat. I mean, short of, of God giving us the strength and the power and the words. And so it's God... Who, who causes us to be faithful and it's God who speaks through us and it's God who gives us the ability to stay the course even in the most severe of trials. And we see our brothers and sisters all throughout history who have been in this very place. People who are being burned at the stake but they're singing to God while they're being engulfed by the flames. And uh, that's amazing to me. And that to me is just a... It, it proves that this is truth. And we saw the same thing happen to the disciples in Acts. So Jesus said, you're still accountable. You still have to preach the gospel. And the Holy Spirit will be with you. The Holy Spirit will give you the ability. So don't worry about what you're going to say. Don't worry about turning away. Don't worry about uh, you know, stumbling other people uh, by what you say. The Holy Spirit will be with you. And we take great, great comfort in that. You know, I have a, another brother, pastor here in town, Pastor John Fernandez at Grace he was uh, one of my professors in a, in a, a seminary um, that I attend, and um, he had recently gone to Ethiopia, and they were people were being baptized. That and it was it's a very um, it's a predominantly Muslim Islamic area, and baptism is the point really. We see we see uh, if you just name the name of Christ and you pray the prayer right, you know, okay, you're in, you're a Christian, but their baptism, that's when you are marked. If, if you get baptized, that's like signing a death warrant for yourself. 
and you know that. And so he showed me some videos on his phone. People were uh, being baptized. Literally before they were being baptized, they were throwing up because they were so scared because they knew that as soon as they did this, that was it. They were going to lose everything, their family. They were going to be marked. I mean, their jobs, the persecution would, would, would come and they may very well lose their lives. And they were going to do this because they believed and they knew it was the truth. But they were that scared. I mean, and people would get down in the waters and just, I mean, hysterical. And I think about that kind of stuff. This is very real. And it's, it has, we're living in a very unique period of time. The freedom that we experience is not normal, nor has it really been. Uh, by and large, persecution is rampant. It's real all around the world. And uh, we, we don't really experience it much at all. And... Um, and Jesus said that when this happens, don't worry, the Holy Spirit is going to tell you what, what to say. I thank the Lord for that. Praise God for His faithfulness. All right, moving on. Now Jesus is going to kind of seemingly fast forward way beyond the years of what the disciples are thinking of. And so often that happens in Scripture. That's something that you want to take note of. Oftentimes prophecies have a, a near fulfillment and a distant fulfillment. And you'll see that, uh, and I think in part because it just it gives validity to what has been said. Just as Jesus talked about the destruction of the temple and it happened, now all these, these distant prophecies that, that come about, we can have that confidence that they will come to pass. So now Jesus goes from the church age, the time of the Gentiles that we are currently in, and all of a sudden he moves into a time known as the Great Tribulation. And as I said, I'm just going to give a really brief overview of all of this um, as we get into it. I'm not going to uh, go from verse to verse or, or all of that. So verse 14. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house nor enter to take anything out of the house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter, for in those days there will be tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake whom He chose, He shortened the days. Alright, so I'm just going to, this is a time of tribulation and then it leads into the next paragraph we're going to read will be the second coming. So what we're looking at here is, is the church age, the age of the Gentiles where we are currently and then all of a sudden Jesus enters into this great tribulation period and then at the end of that time there will be the second coming of Christ which we'll get to in a moment. So let me just kind of piece this together for you as I understand it. And also understand that some of these things are very debatable. People even within this church have very different, different views on how these things will line up and shake down, and that's okay. This would be an example of something that we can differ on and still get along. We can still fellowship. These are non-essentials. The timeline of eschatological events, the end of days, things of, like that, you know, we can agree to disagree, and, and that's okay. There are essentials that we cannot disagree on. Uh, the centrality of, of Christ, the gospel, the exclusivity of the gospel, 
There's no other way to salvation but through Him alone, the virgin birth, the Trinity, things like that. Those we cannot agree to disagree. But this would be one, so there should be no fistfights out in the foyer after the service over this, okay? So basically, he talks about, you want to know what the sign is? Okay, Jesus tells them what the sign is. The sign is when the abomination of desolation comes into the temple where he ought not. And so we believe that's the Antichrist, and this is the sign, okay? Jesus said all these other things are going to be happening, and they're going to escalate in frequency and intensity, but this is not the sign. This is the beginning of the end. But the sign is when the abomination of desolation comes into the temple where he ought not be. So let me just construct this for you as best I understand it. There currently is not a temple. It has been destroyed, so the Jews are not able to worship God uh, according to their religion, Judaism, in the temple right now. The temple is currently under Muslim control. There is a mosque there. And so as long as that is happening, there, there won't be a temple there. Well, we believe, as the Jews don't believe that Messiah has come. They don't believe that Jesus was the Christ. So this guy will come in that will uh, bring about some sort of unity, some sort of peace, and the Jews will be able to rebuild their temple on the Temple Mount. And we believe that most likely that will be the Antichrist. And he will come and this will happen. And the, the third temple will be built. And temple worship will be restored. And people will look at this guy and say, this is incredible. Who could have done such a thing? We need to follow this guy. And the whole world will really come under the sway of this, this leader. Alright? And so... Now we enter into the, the tribulation period, which we believe biblically is a seven-year period, and it is broken in half. There's a three-and-a-half-year period, a three-and-a-half-year period, the first and latter half of the seven-year tribulation period. Well, in the first three-and-a-half years, it's a time of, of global prosperity, economic prosperity, peace. Everyone is following this, this one leader, except the Christians, Okay, so the Christians would be the rebels. Okay, so that, that's why there would be immense persecution for those who believe in the name of Jesus during that time. And let me also say that we here hold to the pre-tribulation rapture. We believe that the church, the Bible teaches that the church will be raptured out before this happens. And so a lot of people disagree on this, but the, generally the stance of Calvary Chapel, we believe the Bible teaches that there is a pre-tribulation rapture where the Christians are taken out. And so at this point, the Christians are taken out. If there are Christians here, they come to Christ in the tribulation period. During this first three and a half year period, everyone thinks that this is the Christ, who we would call the Antichrist. Well, at three and a half years, he comes into the temple he sets up an image and demands to be worshipped. That is the abomination of desolation at that point. Now everybody realizes, okay, this is not who we thought it was. This is, especially the Jews, would have been absolutely floored by this. And now all hell breaks loose on earth. For the next three and a half years, the latter part of the tribulation, it really is tribulation. It is on a scale that the world has never seen or never will see again. Jesus talks about that. And that's crazy. Imagine that. Think about the bubonic plague. I think there was something like 25 million people in eight years that died. You think about just all the Holocaust, all the terrible things that have happened throughout history. Nothing compares to what is coming in this tribulation period. And so that's what's happening. 
and the abomination of desolation comes in and it's like a, a, a time clock, an end times time clock. And Jesus says, when that happens, this is the sign. This is the beginning. This is the end. Okay, this is it. And it all goes crazy from there. And then Christ returns after three and a half years. Because remember, it said that if He had not shortened the days, no flesh would have been left. I mean, everyone would, have, would, would be wiped out because of just the widespread hell happening on earth at that time. God shortened the days. Literally, that means He fixed the time to three and a half years. I heard someone say He actually shortened the days less than 24-hour period. And that is just kind of silly. That is not what, what that's saying. And so anyways, moving in, now Jesus returns. So verse 21. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, He is there, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great uh, power and glory. And then He will send His angels and gather together His elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. And so there's going to be deceivers too. There are going to be deceivers who have limited powers and they're going to be doing signs and wonders. Maybe something like what we saw in um, Exodus, the Egyptian sorcerers who were able to replicate some of Moses' miracles. I mean, we have people today who, who act like they have powers and it's kind of silly and you can tell that it's just not the real thing. I mean, these people really are going to have powers and they're going to have the ability to deceive people, even, if the, even the elect, if it were possible. But notice the difference. When Jesus comes back, you're going to know. You're going to know that you know there's not going to be any question. Okay? It's not going to be a dog and pony show. It's not going to be a bag of tricks. It says that the stars are going to fall and the moon and the sun, they're not going to give light and, and He's going to come in glory on the clouds. That's amazing. I mean, when Jesus comes, there's cataclysmic, cosmic disturbance. I mean, everyone's going to know all around the world and it's going to be glorious. So Jesus comes back literally. He comes back bodily. It's apparent. Everyone in the world is going to know it. And it's glorious. It's glorious. And so I, I put those verses together because I do think there's a contra contrast. There, there are people who are going to be doing signs and deceiving people. But when Jesus comes back, we're going to know it on a worldwide scale. And we look forward to the day when our Lord comes back. Imagine what it's going to be like for the people that, that reject Christ that are there on that day. The horror, the reality that will set in the moment they, they see. But then you think about how grand and glorious it will be for those who are longing for His return. Those who are on earth in that hell at that time and Jesus returns in glory. And it says that He's going to gather His own. He's going to send His angels to gather the elect from the four winds. How glorious is that? Alright, so now we move into the exhortation. So Jesus gives them a really long and loaded answer. And so this is the so what. This is kind of brings it, brings it practical. In light of all of that, in light of that understanding, He shifts. There's an exhortation to watch. Verse 28. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. 
When its branches has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will, will by no means pass away till all these things take place. This is a simple enough illustration. You look at a fig tree and when it starts to put forth leaves, you know what time of year it is. You see the signs of the time. Moving on, verse 31, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So this is the certainty of Jesus' words, but the uncertainty of His timing. Okay, So He says, one thing you can know, if I said it, it's going to happen. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. And let that bring you comfort. Let that be a promise that you hold on to. Jesus' words will never pass away. God has said He has exalted His word above His very name. And so Jesus says, when I say it, it's going to happen. And He has a pretty good track record so far. And what He said has happened, and what He has said yet to happen will certainly happen. And He said, I said it, bank on it. It's as good as done. Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not. And then He says, regarding the time, no one knows the time. No one knows, not even the Son. I really don't have time to go into that. Um, but I would like to. And so let me just say this. Uh, people like to point at that and say, well, how can Jesus be God if He doesn't even know when he's, when he's coming back? First off, let me just say, the point here is nobody knows, so don't try to guess. Okay, that's not the point. You don't know when the time is, and it's not for you to know, so don't worry about it. Okay? And so you say, I don't even know. All right? First off. But secondly... Getting kind of doctrinal here, getting a little, moving into some theological area. We believe that Jesus is fully God, but fully man. And that is a mystery to us. It's hard for us to reconcile how that can be. We, we believe in the undiminished deity of Christ. Even though He took on flesh and became man fully and could, could relate with us and, and could be our representative and, and die in our place, and he could understand our weakness and our pains and all that, he never sinned. And he still remained fully God. And there were times where we would see him functioning in his humanity. There were times where he was weak, he was hungry, he was tired, he was thirsty. He would, uh, he would have anxiety to the point of sweating great drops of blood. And then there were times where he was clearly functioning as, as God in the flesh. And there was no question about that. And so... Um, all I can say is that he still remains God even though he is, he is man. He's, he's confined himself to those limitations, but he has in no way diminished his, his deity. He is truly God in the flesh. And there are times where we see him say and do certain things and we scratch our heads a little bit, but it's just it's a mystery. It, uh, the Bible teaches both. And you know what, guys? The Bible is full of those. I'm going to give you a word. Antinomy. Antinomy. Okay? And that, that means two seeming contradictions. They're side by side, and somehow it's a mystery that fits together. We don't get it. The Bible was, was inspired by God, written by men. God is one God in three persons. Jesus is fully God, fully man. God chooses whom He will save, yet we respond. We, we choose, and, and you see both, and it's like, how, how does that work? 
And the Bible is just full of those, and, and this is one of them, so get comfortable with it. All right. Moving on. As I said, the point was not when, uh, but now it gets more into how shall we live in the light of this. So, verse 33. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming. In the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping, and what I say to you, I say to all, watch. That's the point. That's the point. That's, that's what this has to do for us. We need to be watchful. We need to live our lives in such a way that the Lord could return today, and we just don't know. So we're to be watchful. And the illustration here is simple. Jesus is the master. We're the stewards. We're, we are to take his resources that he has given us, and we're not to spend them on ourselves, but we're to invest them. We're not to bury it in the ground. We're not to spend it on ourselves, but we are to invest what God has given us in his kingdom while he's gone. So Jesus is the master of the house and he is gone. And he could be long delayed. And so we're not going to sell everything and go wait on a rooftop somewhere because he's coming back today. We're going to get busy investing in the kingdom of God. Right? But conversely, Jesus could be coming back today. And so we have to be a servant who is expecting the master to be long delayed. And we're getting busy in the meantime. But we also have to be a servant who expects the master to come back today. And we need to be ready. We need to be thinking that way, living that way. So what are the implications of that? One, it should give us an urgency to be right with God. If God is coming back today, and he very well could, then we better be right with God. You better be right with God. You don't want to meet God in, under any other circumstance. If you don't know the Lord, if you haven't had your sins washed away, if you still have to give an account for your sin before a holy God, then you need to get right with God today. Because God has made a way for you to have mercy and to have grace through the Son, through His Son, Jesus Christ. God has extended that. So it should create an urgency to be right with God. It should give us an urgency to live purely. As Christians, if we really believe the Lord could come back at any point, um, it would cause us to think carefully about, carefully about how we're, we're living. Have you ever been in a situation where you thought, man, I hope the Lord doesn't come back right now because I am not right? I have been in that situation before. There was one time in particular, you know, a few years into my Christian walk. This was probably the one point in which I had really backslidden. And uh, I just remember getting hit with this. I believe that, that um, you can't just lose your salvation because you sinned. I believe God's, God's grace is so much stronger than that. Um, but I'll tell you what, I sure didn't feel that, that confident about it when I was there. I mean, I had a holy fear in me. And so we, we believe, when we believe that the Lord is coming back, it causes us to want to be right. Uh, when the Lord returns, we want to be found pleasing in His sight. We, we want to be found as servants who were faithful while the Master was away. It should give us an urgency to share the Gospel. If we really believe that God's coming back, we're going to be pretty serious about sharing this with other people. If we really believe this, if we're really gripped by it. And it's hard for us because we're, we're comfortable we're comfortable, are we not? 
And it's hard to have this urgency when, when we're so distracted and mesmerized by, by Napa and the things of this world. And so we've got to pray, Lord, help, help my idolatrous heart. Help me, God, by your Spirit to live with the urgency. And that leads into the last thing. It should cause us to, to keep a light touch on the things of this, this world. If we know the Lord's coming back, we're not going to be overly concerned with lesser things. We're not going to be overly concerned with, with stacking up, storing up riches here, or having all the latest and greatest and nicest things. We're going to be actually concerned about using our resources to further the gospel. Because remember, that's what we were supposed to be doing in the first place. You remember Jesus said when everything's going bad and there's persecution and betrayal, you still have to be out uh, furthering the gospel. And so if we really believe that, that that's where we're at and the Lord's coming back, we should be busy doing that. Amen? And so are we doing that? Are you doing that? That's the question. And, uh, and if you believe this and that there's a reason why the Lord told us this, then it should cause us to live that way. So God help us, God have mercy on us, may we live this way. May we live in the light of His return and may it have a real effect on us that causes us to live with this kind of urgency, this serious, uh, this serious look on holiness and purity and, and getting out the gospel and, and not being distracted with the things of this world, uh, the lesser things. So we'll close there. I made it through the whole chapter. That's a miracle. So, all right. Brother Joe is going to come up and, and close with a song. I just want to encourage you guys. Cry out to the Lord right where you're at. Uh, sing, worship, pray, honor the Lord, give Him glory. If I said something here today that really hit you, man, lift that up to the Lord. Cry out to Him. And, uh, and the Lord wants to meet, meet with you here. So uh, shall we all stand? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love You and we bless Your holy name and we thank You for warning us. Thank You that You told us beforehand before these things come. And just as Joe said earlier, Your, your consistent reputation holds us together. Lord, we look back and we consider all those times that You've been faithful and all those times that Your Word has come true. And so we know that it will happen again, God. We can have confidence that You are faithful, always faithful. Even when we're faithless, You cannot deny yourself so lord we trust in you we rest in you we thank you for your word today god and i pray that it would have a a life-changing and lasting impact on on our lives in jesus name amen